0: I'm Alex Perine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic.
1: And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor.
0: And this is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics.
1: Today, we're talking about how the pharmaceutical industry has mishandled vaccine production and the case for expanding government control over drug research and development.
0: Later in the episode, we're talking about depictions of Hillary Clinton in books and on TV. What do we get out of fictionalizing the former presidential candidate? why is the fantasy of a slightly different Hillary so appealing?
1: This is The Politics of Everything. As lockdowns continue across the world, we're in the midst of a race for a coronavirus vaccine. Getting a vaccine is one of the few developments that would seem to ensure the reopening of communities and something like a return to normal. Several vaccines are in development, but it's not clear how soon they will be ready. And there are more hurdles to testing, approval, and distribution of a vaccine than we might think. Many of the roadblocks are even put in place by pharmaceutical companies themselves, the very companies who are meant to be treating us. Here with us today to talk about the problems with vaccine development is Alexander Zaitchik, a frequent contributor to The New Republic, who has an article in our June issue about the role of big pharma in vaccine production. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Alex.
2: Thanks for having me. Good to be here.
1: So we're looking to pharmaceutical companies to make these incredibly important vaccines. Is that something that they're good at?
2: Uh, It is not something that they've been good at for a while. They used to be when they were sort of in a junior position in relation to a very different kind of drug development system. But in the last 40 odd years or so, we have seen the rise of patent-based privatized drug system that has seen declining um, innovation on the vaccine front and other crucial areas that tend not to return a lot of profit.
1: So I want to talk about the patent model that we have, because I think that when you see politicians talking about getting to a vaccine, trying to get back to normal you assume that they would be able to move heaven and earth to make that happen. And yet there's this system of intellectual property operating that imposes a lot of obstacles to getting a vaccine, right?
2: Yes. Basically, the system is built with obstacles. Companies purchase or develop molecules and then try to protect it at all costs. The basic instrument is the 20-year patent, which is the new standard term. But there's all sorts of tricks by which that can be extended. And these patents cover two areas that are both important to the vaccine story. On the one hand, it's market exclusivity they have, which means they control the sale of any eventual vaccine. And they also control the data around the development of that vaccine, which will inhibit and slow the ability of other actors around the world to also produce this vaccine. And it will slow the ability to scale up surge production if a vaccine is, in fact, found. So there's a lot of ways that the patent system acts as a retardant to both access and also the development itself, because labs can't communicate freely. There's Walls, and it's worth you know beginning these conversations always by remembering that this is not how it's always been. This is not even how it is all around the world. This is pretty much an American <laughs> innovation, and it can be uninnovated, which is a conversation that, luckily, um, is starting to take place.
0: So to like zoom out a thousand miles here, the sort of ideological justification for this, or the Economics 101 justification for this, is that patents and patent monopolies will spur innovation. That is certainly
2: the industry line, and they have been extremely effective at getting that message across. They've built up think tank networks. They've got a lock on the political system with one of the richest lobbying operations in town. So yes, a lot of people kind of grew up with that line. And the problem with that line is Well, there's a lot of them, but for one, it belies the way science and medical progress has worked since, you know, (laughs) a long time ago. It's only recently that patent exclusivities have been in existence. And, you know, we had progress before them. In fact, we had a lot of progress. We had more progress on the vaccine front before the rise of the 20-year patent. Another issue is that it's simply not true. And we know it's not true because the money that goes into most of the breakthroughs, almost all of them, in fact, new medicines that are actually innovative, are based on a $42 billion federal subsidy. And the profits from the breakthroughs based on this subsidy are not being plowed back into R&D in most cases, but in fact, go into the cycle of financialization that now defines big pharma and big biotech.
1: So to go back to the 20-year patent, I just want to understand a little bit more about the idea that it basically ensures that drug companies will make their money back on their investment. Because it sounds like there are certain drugs for which this works very well, and then there are other kinds of drugs for which this completely doesn't work. Like if you're looking to maximize your profits as a drug company, then it makes sense to develop a drug that someone will be taking for their whole life to manage a chronic disease, perhaps, rather than a one-time cure or vaccine.
2: Right, correct. And also, they tend to be bulk bought by, especially pediatric vaccines, by the government. And they drive down prices. This is you know, a little window into what the government could do with drug prices, generally, if they were actually negotiating through Medicare like they do through the Veterans Affairs. So yeah, they they tend not to be very profitable. And that's why the amount of resources into them has been declining uh, steadily and and dramatically.
1: So one thing I wanted to talk about was a couple real life cases in which we've been close to developing a vaccine for highly contagious disease, Ebola, SARS, MERS. And then those projects just vanished into thin air you have a great story in the piece about the ebola vaccine
2: yeah the winnipeg ebola vaccine is really kind of instructive story um so the university of winnipeg had an academic government-sponsored lab that came up with an extremely promising ebola vaccine that had really great results with monkeys so they outsourced the middle and late stage development to a private concern which basically just didn't think it was worth their time. They put it in their folder of, you know, IP and were using it as basically bait to get bought up by a bigger company, which they did. And that bigger company didn't really do much with it either. They ended up flipping it to Merck. Uh, Within all this, there's an outbreak. And had the Canadian government just developed the damn drug themselves, had there been a full cycle public drug sector... The thing would have been developed in time. And it was eventually developed and it was deployed for later outbreaks, but it it took a lot longer than it otherwise would have. And that vaccine is now making a cameo, by the way. Merck just jumped into the PR vaccine game by touting this very Canadian government-funded Ebola vaccine as a possible candidate for for treating COVID. Um, And it's worth noting that a lot of these candidates come out of government research and the fact that these corporations are sort of getting little halo effects because you've got Mm -hmm. a scared, terrified, desperate world and that they're claiming some sort of corporate responsibility and, you know, our savior is just absurd because if you just scratch the surface on these candidates, you know, remdesivir, it usually traces back to government money in some
0: way.
1: So one thing I want to sort of unpack there is the incentives that the private company that had acquired this Ebola vaccine had, and it's kind of how they changed. Because when they licensed the vaccine from the Canadian government, that could have been a moment at which an Ebola vaccine looked like a, it was going to be a really big thing, but as it was, there wasn't a huge demand for it, and it seemed to have kind of withered on the vine. And then there's this other part of that story, which is that I think most people would assume that if a company acquired the rights to a vaccine that's because they would want to make it.
2: One would assume. <laughs> and so yeah. for
1: me the like the most surprising part of that was just the idea that for this company Bioprotection Systems to have uh, theoretically the capacity to bring an Ebola vaccine to market was was purely something that they wanted so that it could look attractive to investors not because they were going to act on any intention to start getting Ebola vaccines out there.
2: Yeah, that's correct. That's the only way to read the sequence of events. And had there been a clearly predictable market for an Ebola vaccine at the time, they probably would have performed very differently. I mean, Mm -hmm. these companies want predictable markets for drugs. Existing markets, they love cancer treatments, painkillers, you know, ED pills, whatever it is. But vaccines for high-risk, unpredictable events, you put a lot of money into it, maybe it's nothing. Or maybe it's 20 years before the molecule's worth something. And, you know, do you really want to spend all that money tweaking it? No, that's why they rely on military research centers and the CDC to come in and smack them in the head and say, hey, get that molecule out. We're going to pay $70 million for you to run trials. But they don't want to spend money on this stuff. That's not where the money is. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been where the money is ever. And this industry is just about money. It's really just that simple.
1: Mm -hmm. And then you also have an example in the piece of um, a researcher, Peter Hotez, who was working on vaccines for SARS and MERS.
2: Yeah, Hotez has been one of the few voices to just come out and just say this. You know, he's like, look, we do not have a commercial incentive structure for these threats to be addressed. It's not going to happen within a commercial system. And the government is not going to do it either unless it is committed. And these halfway measures that rely on private contractors are not working. Mm -hmm.
1: There seems to be a pattern here of doing early research, getting close to something and then forgetting about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now, most of the $42 billion we mentioned is going to uh, basic research. And there's an uh, expectation that private industry will, will develop and bring the drug to market.
1: One thing I found really interesting about your piece is that you show there has long been an awareness that that doesn't really work. And you have this great quote from Anthony Fauci who says, I think back in 2005, if faced with the choice of putting $200 million into a new area, will pharmaceutical companies make a product to combat an emerging microbe for which there is an uncertain market, or will they develop a new Viagra or a better Lipitor?
2: Yeah, the question answers itself. And I think it it answered itself at the time, and and he knew it did. He was speaking to a convention of medical school deans when he made that statement. I mean, people inside the system know its limitations very well. It's it's no secret.
0: So let's let's talk about alternative models. And we can start maybe just with historically, you sort of date our current system not as one that was handed down to us by the founders, but as one that we sort of chose to focus on the 20-year patent monopoly in the 20th century. So what was sort of the model before that?
2: It's strange to think about now because it's such another planet. But for basically most of American history, up until um, the middle decades of the 20th century, there was a split. It was a pretty hard split between what were known as ethical pharmacists and snake oil salesmen, basically. And if you tried to claim property rights on medicine, you were associated kind of in equal measure with fraud and a sort of antisocial greed that was completely at odds with what medicine was supposed to be about, the sort of global humanistic enlightenment project. And the norms were very much shaped by the medical community, not hedge funds. And when the government got involved in scientific research during World War II and became the biggest player in biomedical R&D, which remains by a lot, that kind of carried over, and it was institutionalized in the World War II institutions that were responsible for some huge advances on the vaccine front. And the idea that this science could be sold was very much anathema to the ethos of that time, which carried into the 1960s. Uh, There was, you know, public control of public science for the public good. And that pretty much lasted until the Nixon era. There was a guy in NIH, the patent lawyer, named Norman Latker, who basically imposed the 17-year patent, which has now been extended to 20. And that opened the floodgates to the transfer of government science into private hands. And then it was supercharged 12 years later with the election of Ronald Reagan with Bob Dole, the old bipartisanship that everyone's so uh, <laughs> nostalgic for gave us. It was
0: Birch Bay Bi, and
2: Bob Dole. Yes. And this is also the era of you know financialization. The economy's changing. You have all this money just pouring into pharma and biotech. A lot of money suddenly is not only sloshing around, but there's properties to buy. Huge profusion of IP. Suddenly, companies not only own this stuff, but they have to protect it. So you start to get 1984 U.S. Trade Act. You get the WTO. And suddenly, there's a global regime around these patents that are enforced around the world. And most of the world is in shock at this. They can't believe it. Because most of the world, compared to the United States, is poor. And they deal with diseases that we also don't have to deal with. The global South was bearing the brunt of HIV on top of tuberculosis and malaria. And suddenly, the research is being geared away from these things towards profitable products for the U.S. market and other wealthy countries. And if one of those could also cure a disease in the South, it was unaffordable. And that was a huge fight that took place in the 90s, which basically birthed the modern drug access movement around the first antiretrovirals so that treated HIV. But I think one thing worth mentioning is this IP regime never stopped. There's still this tug of war taking place between the U.S. multinational pharmaceutical companies and a few other countries and, and the world. And Trans-Pacific Partnership was a huge battleground for that, which you know didn't happen. But this trade deal that Obama and Clinton were pushing so hard for contained a plank that basically would have stripped what's known as pre-grant hearings from patents in other countries, which give NGOs and third-party actors a chance to protest a patent as fraudulent or contrary to the public interest. So it would have like supercharged the WTO system. And that TPP debate is sort of being reanimated now with the fight over global patent pools, universal access, and the creation of a so-called people's vaccine versus this pharma model, which is trying to dominate the process.
0: Well, right, because this is, it's all treated as part of trade policy now. And the the TPP fight, I'm not sure how many people who followed the election even completely understood Uh, it was truly bipartisan. Um, It was also truly remarkable that Hillary Clinton belatedly, I think, came out against it because Democrats have been entirely on board with this form of free trade for years and years and years. But these trade fights, people sort of imagine it as, I think, in the Trumpian way of tariffs on steel. But what we're actually fighting over is that the intellectual property rights of our, quote-unquote, multinational corporations are respected by much poorer countries. That's a central part of it. Yeah, exactly. I, I just read last month, I think a story that was seemed to be warning in, in complete seriousness that U.S. officials were worried that if we developed a vaccine, China might steal it. You know, not, not that they would physically steal the actual vaccine itself, but that our, our precious intellectual property might go to curing Chinese people without some corporation getting paid for it. And that, that's a completely omnipresent attitude in American politics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: So what are the solutions that you would suggest?
2: Well, among drug access activists around the world, there is a general push for global pools, basically open science models in which all research is available and it is not possible to build walls around it to claim uh, exclusive rights to it. There would be global cooperation, drugs would be produced, basically at cost with public health for second and third in mind, not shareholder value and uh, share price. Already within the race for the vaccine, quote unquote, we've seen examples of open science that have been incredibly tantalizing. Like all of the centers, the national science centers that control these hugely expensive particle accelerators, they basically just got together and they were sharing information about what proteins make up this virus. And they did this 3D mapping of, of these proteins and basically cracked it in like a matter of days. And, you know, you can change the laws or you can also get enough people who just don't recognize the rules and they kind of cease to exist. I mean, one little insight into how that could be happened early into all this when Israel basically told Abbey we're not going to recognize your, your patent on a drug that they thought could be useful for treating COVID. And, and suddenly everyone turned to Abby V and they're like, are you really going to fight them on this? Are you going to take Israel to court in its own courts to charge money for this drug? And they backed down. And there have been cases of compulsory licensing and, and patent breaking around the world since this began. And those show you that, in fact, patents are constructions that can be unconstructed or just ignored. The problem with that is if you make exceptions, you're you're basically still leaving the, the basic system standing. And it might be better to just have public drug systems around the world that are producing products without patents at all.
0: I can imagine a world in which all these other countries get together and say, we're going to find a new model of developing treatments and a new model of distributing treatments. And then for once, America gets left out because we're, we're too addicted to only using medicine as a way for the large companies to make more money. Yeah.
2: So what
1: would a public option for vaccine manufacturing look like? What would you build it from?
2: Well, it would probably be part of a larger public drug system, which would look a lot like what we already have at the beginning of the pipeline. We already have these labs and we have an enormous amounts going into basic science. And then we would just follow it through to trial, which again, we could do with the infrastructure already in place. And then we'd have manufacturing capability, which might take a while to build because as we mentioned, a lot of it's been spread out around the world and there's problems with that supply chain that the private industry has built. But it's doable. Uh, it's certainly doable. Liz Warren and Jan Sakowski have a public drug bill to manufacture essential medicines in the U.S. Uh, hasn't gotten a lot of traction, but it's there. Uh, Labor UK has a medicines for the many plan to also produce drugs publicly in-house full cycle. It's it's just a question of will. I mean, we can build factories, we have trucks, (laughs) we have supply depots. And I think there's already a lot of intuitive kind of political will latent in this country around this issue because people just understand something is wrong. Like there's no reason for people to be insulin rationing in the United States in 2020. So even if they don't understand all the details of what's wrong with this picture, the energy is kind of there waiting to be mobilized. And I think it could be explained pretty easily and, and could be a powerful part of a, a truly progressive platform built around this.
1: one question i don't think we did the kind of like well thanks so much for talking to us part
0: (laughs) uh thank you so much for joining us alex yeah thank you guys (laughs) take care beautiful after a short break i'll be talking to laura and the new republic's regular film critic lydia haas about fictional and non-fictional representations of hillary clinton second segment today, we are talking about Hillary Clinton as a genre, the small empire of books, movies, and TV shows that has sprung up in the past few years about the former presidential candidate and first lady. There's a children's book called A Girl Named Hillary, Hillary and Chelsea's book of gutsy women for teens. There's Hillary's own memoir about the 2016 election. Hulu recently made a four-part documentary series. And now... Sort of unofficially, standing outside the licensed universe of Hillary Clinton, there's a novel by Curtis Sittenfeld called Rodham, which imagines an alternate life story for Hillary Clinton in which she never marries Bill Clinton. Laura just reviewed Rodham for The New Republic, and joining us is another Hillary Clinton expert, TNR's regular film critic, Lydia Haas, who reviewed Hulu's docuseries in our March issue. Uh, Laura, you reviewed the book. Uh, tell us what happens.
1: The first part of the book kind of covers the very well-known story of Hillary Rodham meeting Bill Clinton at Yale Law School and then describes them dating for a while. And then there's this turning point at which Hillary decides, actually, Bill is really not a good guy and I shouldn't marry him. Um, and that's like kind of the fork in history that the rest of the book takes off from... The sliding doors moment. That's the the sliding doors moment. This is not a spoiler-free podcast, right?
0: If you are concerned about spoilers (laughs) in the book Rodham, shut off the podcast right now. Turn it off because we are going to just plow right through.
1: That may be a very tempting invitation (laughs) for
0: a lot of people
1: (laughs) who just don't want to listen to something about Rodham. Um, The twist basically is that Hillary and Bill kind of moved to Arkansas and during his 1974 campaign he assaults a woman. And it's a very similar assault to the incident that's been alleged by Juanita Broderick. Although in the book, her name is not used. And this woman approaches the Hillary Rodham character and tells her what has happened. And the character in the book decides that she really can't stay with a man who has sexually assaulted a woman. There's this kind of quite strong moral clarity to it. They break up. It's like a very, very strange departure from the real story of Hillary and Bill.
0: I find it the concept of it very interesting because what I would think makes Hillary Clinton a dramatically interesting character to explore would be the decisions and compromises she has made, or ones that she might not even consider compromises, including attaching herself to her very charismatic and politically successful husband, who also has this other history with accusations of assault and, and, and infidelity— um, so, I don't know, when you take away that relationship, what do you end up with in Hillary Clinton, the character?
1: Um, <laughs> well, the answer to that is Elizabeth Warren, um, <laughs> basically. So, the, the the next two sections of the book are kind of about Hillary's life after she renounces Bill. You get to catch up with her when she's a very respected law professor, <laughs> and has kind of quietly made friends with all the right people to launch a political career and is going to run for Senate. And then she kind of like throws in like a little bit of Amy Klobuchar, (laughs) a little bit of Kamala Harris, a little bit of uh, Kirsten Gillibrand.
0: Um, Lydia, you read the book too, right?
1: I did,
3: yeah. I think that the book seems to take as its like animating question, you know, what would it take for a woman to win the presidency. And so in that sense, she sort of comes across as, in a way, that the same kind of character that the Hulu documentary tries to present her is, which is just this very hardworking public servant, a good woman trying to serve other women and make life more equitable for them and set a good example for little girls.
0: So is it, in that sense, is it wish fulfillment?
1: So when I approached the book, my worry was that it would be a wish fulfillment fantasy. And I think that the emotional desire for that since the election has been very strong and persistent. I think everyone indulges in counterfactuals about Hillary Clinton. What if she'd campaigned harder in Wisconsin? What if she hadn't ever made the super predators comment? So I think that that is understandable, but a not very good premise for a novel. But I actually think what the novel is doing is something slightly more complicated because a what if that's, what if this woman cared about sexual assault is not a very flattering right. fantasy to have about one of your <laughs> idols. Like, that shocked me. Like, it's it's such a strong critique of the Hillary that she's fantasizing about, that these two people would be morally so different. I mean, to be fair to Hillary Clinton herself, there's no documentation that she knew of these incidents in the 1970s when they happened. So the book does sort of give her an opportunity to hear those stories and react to them in a way that I think you could say, if you were to defend Hillary Clinton in real life, she didn't have that chance at the time. But the fact remains that if you try and ask Hillary Clinton like, what her positions are on any of these allegations against Bill to this day, it's very hard to get an absolutely clear moral position on what he is accused of doing.
3: I feel like part of what Sittenfeld seems to be suggesting is that if you take out all of the moral complexity of the real Hillary, what would have happened when she's running for president as a woman? And the answer is
2: Mm -hmm.
3: pretty much the same thing in the sense that she would still be accused of all (laughs) sorts of things, including murder you know, including um, corruption, all of which are not true in this sort of fantasy version. They're, they're, they're sort of very clearly not true. So, so the implication to me is any female candidate, no matter how morally uncomplicated and perfect they are, is going to basically run into the same uh, purely misogynistic reaction.
1: Yeah. So in the book, there still is a rally at which it's now Bill Clinton supporters chanting, shut her up, shut her up.
0: <laughs> so her and Bill are, are competing against each other for the Democratic primary, right, in the book. Mm-hmm. What a twist.
1: <laughs> yeah, and this is meant to be the equivalent of Trump's rallies, lock her up, lock her up. But when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense <laughs> because the people showing up to his rally are like centrist neoliberal <laughs> members in the Democratic Party. These are not people, and like, say whatever you want about them. They're not people who go and chant, shut her up at rallies. That was, to me, kind of shoehorned in. And I think it speaks to a bigger problem with the book, which is that it's so obsessed with sort of justifying Hillary Clinton in some ways and creating a more acceptable version of her, that it doesn't really engage with... Um, many of the other aspects of American politics, like the people who vote, the people who support politicians, the things that they
0: want. If I was going to imagine a world, imagine a world in which Hillary Clinton, this smart, talented, ambitious, driven person, imagine a world in which she had a break with Bill early on and what kind of career she would have had later, I think to myself, I am imagining Diane Feinstein. <laughs>
2: like, it exists,
0: it's there in the world, and it's not just, it's like... Like, what is so special about Hillary Rodham that we had to sort of imagine that she was worth following without the thing that makes her life interesting happening?
1: Mm-hmm. I think if you were going to do a character study of a powerful woman who's held office for a long time and to look at the compromises and the inner life, some kind of thinly veiled Diane Feinstein could be a good candidate for that. And then at least you would have a book about someone who's actually making big decisions. And you'd have to talk about their politics as well. <laughs> mm. You know,
3: yeah, like they'd have to have different politics from some of the other people that they were having to compromise with or fight against.
1: Yeah, and the thing about Rodham is, really, even though it's about this fantasy of her being elected and becoming this exemplary female president, you have no idea what she stands for.
0: That's what I found your description of it so interesting because it did. You you describe. a a novel in which, like, politics isn't about anything except for biography, almost.
3: And you also have a world, of course, where, because there's no Bill Clinton presidency, and so there's no George W. Bush, and there's no... (laughs) <laughs> you know, you don't really know where the 9/11 happened. There is, there are a couple
0: of. <laughs> Did 9/11 happen? That's in a Rotten? really
3: good question. There are a couple of references to Islamic terrorism, but it's
1: none of the major defining events of the 21st century are referred to at all. Yeah, it's very strange. But then, at the same time, it
3: seemed sort of weirdly contemporary to me as a premise because it's so focused on politics as just a total outcropping of personal morality meaning, basically, how you conduct your sex life. Um, So the idea is somehow that because she's a hardworking woman, you sort of understand that her politics are also going to be the good ones. She's going to be supporting whatever is going to make things more equitable for everybody, and especially women. And the sleazy guys are obviously going to be doing something worse than that. But it's not really clear (laughs) what anyone actually disagrees about politically.
1: The other thing that seemed to connect the Hulu series and the book to me was, like, the sense of victimhood. I remember from your review, um, there's that quote where one of her advisors tells her, only 5% of people have a unfavorable view of you, and she shoots back. That means 25 million people hate me. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> but I think, you know, the story with the Clintons we've seen is that, like— they take their very real experience of maltreatment on the hands of Republicans or the press and then use it to sort of excuse nearly everything else they do. <laughs> but like, uh, <laughs> Definitely. But this is why it's not just difficult for me to imagine, but uninteresting for me to imagine Hillary without Bill. The, the sort of person who, you know, in defiance of simple political wisdom, insists on giving those Wall Street speeches when people near her are telling her, like, what are you doing? Because her belief is that I will be persecuted no matter what I do, so fuck it, I'm going to do what I want. Like, you, I don't know. I find that, again, more narratively interesting than a perfect Hillary Clinton.
1: The version of a perfect Hillary Clinton that gets into the, this Wall Street comparable situation in the book is that she dates a futures trader and he invests some money in her name without her knowledge. <laughs> and then it's, like, thrown back in her face.
0: <laughs> it's
1: like every instance of, like, her being accused of something in this book is something that she was actually innocent of. <laughs> I think both the novel and the documentary also come to this sort of uneasy ending. The series basically tells a story that's a tragedy, but then at the very end, it decides it can't quite live with that. It then swerves to being like, but there's a silver lining, which is all of the like successful young women in politics now <laughs> are standing on my Absolutely. shoulders. Absolutely, <laughs> including,
3: it seems, AOC and uh, <laughs> all of these. Like... A famous
1: member of the Penn Nation. <laughs> yeah,
3: totally. No, it's very explicit about that. They say, I think, that maybe her loss lit the fuse and all of these other women are now all the more determined to power through because, of course... All of these women are on the same side
0: politically again. <laughs> Do you think uh, Hillary Clinton has read Rodham?
1: I think someone on her team <laughs> has read Rodham and briefed has her briefed, on it. You
0: think she's been briefed <laughs> on it, not that she has read it herself.
1: I am sure that there is a very nice like, little cheat sheet that was texted to her. <laughs> That's my alternate universe fantasy.
0: <laughs> Do you think if she did read it, would she find it fair, unfair?
1: I think it's terribly insulting. (laughs) I I wouldn't be happy with it. I mean, what do you think, Lydia? I don't know. I'd like to think that she'd laugh, (laughs) but maybe
3: that's giving her too much credit. I don't know. I mean, apart from anything else, the Clintons famously, they have this sort of omerta system. You know, the people around them are so loyal and so secretive that you try and have this completely perfect image. And this is like very close to that. (laughs) <laughs> Even though it does have the implied critique of the, that she actually cared about another woman's sexual assault. <laughs> right.
0: hmm
3: It's definitely not the worst that she's had to contend with as a portrait. Um, <laughs> let's put
0: it that way. Uh, well, thank you very much, Lydia, and Laura, as always, thank you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
0: This is The Politics of Everything. Please subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And please take advantage of the New Republic's exclusive summertime offer. Get unlimited access to newrepublic.com for 3 months for just $5. Available for a limited time at tnr.com/specialoffer.
0: Thanks for listening.